Please join me as we pray and welcome God's presence as his word is spoken to us. Eternal, patient, holy God, grant us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Make us eager to hear it and long to taste it, milk and honey for our sojourning souls. We hang on your promises. We cling to the sure hope they will be fulfilled. And we wait on you, Lord, our God. You alone can sustain us. Amen. Scripture reading today is Mark 13, verses 24 to 37. In those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But about that day or hour, it's always with some mixture of fascination and fear that Christians have speculated about those words and spoken about them for some time. We want to know what the future holds. We want to know how we can recognize the signs, how we can be ready, how we can know what is to come. And we have this dim sort of anxious notion that the answer is somewhere in the pages of the Bible. If only we knew how to, you know, pick the divine lock to get the right code to the prophecies. Now, the technical term for this is eschatology, and I've got a little picture to help you remember uh, that word. <laughs> he doesn't look happy to be wearing that hoodie. I don't know why. I think he is a boss in that. It's from uh, the Greek word eschaton, which means the very end of things, the uh, last things, and the word logos, which is the same word we use for reason or logic. In other words, Jesus is speaking a word about the last things. Uh, when, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, he will come to judge the living and the dead, the resurrection of the body when the restoration of all things will take place. 
And there have been a whole lot of words written about these last things. In fact, this blew my mind. Uh, Google tracks the frequency of how often words are used over time. Going back to 1850, uh, I would have thought the word eschatology would have peaked somewhere kind of like in the middle of that, around the end of the 19th century. But it has only gone up as time has gone on. I'm not sure what that says about humanity. But it does explain why there is such a huge market for TV evangelists and authors of popular books who claim that they have been able to solve the mystery and will reveal it to anyone who is able to send in a contribution of three easy payments of $99.95. Now, this was definitely my grandmother's passion. Uh, she lived to be 100 years old, and she was holding out for the rapture. Nearly every spare dime she had, she gave to various preachers and ministries. She had been on end-time tours of Israel at least four or five times. And after coming back from one of those trips, she pulled me aside. I remember it very clearly. It was the summer of 1992. And she asked me what the state of my soul was like. I was like 15 years old. I was like, ah, good, I don't know. Um, and then she, she did the whole crooked finger, which that my grandma was very nice, but you knew you were in for something when the crooked finger came out. And she said, good, because Jesus is coming back in 1993. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> now, someone she had listened to worked it all out that the seven years of tribulation would take us straight to the year 2000, and that was when God was going to come back to cut all the sinners down. Now, I was not a biblical scholar by, by any stretch of the imagination uh, when I was a sophomore in high school, but I was pretty sure I remember Jesus saying something about, like, no one knows the day or the time, and if God created the whole universe, then he probably wasn't tied to round numbers or a Gregorian calendar. So I figured she was wrong about that. But if anybody knew Jesus, Nana knew Jesus. So I was maybe a little bit more on edge that whole year. The thought would pop into my head like, what if the rapture happens while I'm sinning? Which, again, I was 15 years old. That happened like every eight seconds, right? Every time I would go out to the park and I would go play basketball and I'd come back and no one was home, I'd be like, oh. <laughs> rapture. It's enough to make you a little bit anxious for a while. So you can imagine my relief when January 1st, 1994 came around. But... People from every age and every time, we tend to be a little bit anxious. We have reasons for that. In 1501, Christopher Columbus uh, wrote the Book of Prophecies in which he claimed, surely the world will end within the next 150 years. Well, 1651 came and went. And then the 20th century, there were all kinds of predictions. We saw the horror just hidden beneath the surface of the human heart, two world wars, the Holocaust, Khmer Rouge, Rwanda, all of them gave us a picture of what the Antichrist could be like. Hiroshima and Nagasaki raining down fire, the possibility of a fiery Armageddon engulfing the world. And then when I was a kid, we were told that it was going to be because of the Soviet Union, that Armageddon would be some combination of like Red Dawn and something else. What we were really afraid of, though, in California was the big one. So we would have these, you know, our teachers would make us get under our desks and do these drills in case an earthquake came. And, you know, second grade Einsteins that we were, we were pretty sure our desks were not going to stand up to an 8.0 magnitude earthquake, but we did it anyway. 
And then there was Y2K. Remember that? What was that all about? It was a glitch in computer software it was going to cause like the world's economic system to crash or something like that. I don't even remember what it was about other than I remember suddenly everybody thought that Prince was a prophet. 2000, zero, zero, party over, out of time. I had a friend who was in college, not religious at all, who was so committed to the Y2K bit that he decided he was not going to pay his rent in the month of December. It's like, dude, the world's going to end. What does it matter? And then he spent all of January couch surfing after that. And then after that, it was the, no, 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 it was the Mayan calendar. 2012 was when it's really going to happen. 2012 came and went, right? But then there's another war in Europe, and then there's a recession and a depression and COVID. There's a fair amount of anxiety to go around. Fear has a way of getting into our bones. And when we live in an anxious culture, it's hard not to reflect that right back. But even when we don't do that, it still has a way of kind of chasing us down and following us when we go to bed at night. Church historian Martin Marty put it like this. He said, the world is always coming to an end. And because of that, the church throughout the ages has sought infallible proofs of when that was going to take place. And to some degree, that makes sense. You want to be ready. But in another way, I think it's because it gets us off the hook of actually doing what Jesus has called us to do, which is to watch and wait and trust. And the real tragedy that has come about from all of this speculation about the end and this misuse of Jesus' words about the end is that it has basically created two kinds of Christians. There are those who are overly invested in end times prophecy and funnel every ounce of their creativity and their energy into trying to figure out what Jesus clearly says no one is going to figure out. But then on the other hand, it's led others to dismiss Jesus' words about the end of history altogether and to conclude, hey, there's no one coming to save us. It's up to us to fix the world. And in two very different ways, these are both about control. But what if human history doesn't need to be controlled? What if instead it simply needs to be redeemed? You see, we all, we all have this sense, whether we are religious or not, that not only are things not the way they are supposed to be, but that they can't stay the way that they are. I mean, if you look at the, the surging levels of anxiety and depression and in the proliferation of available identities that people look to as a cure, whether those are political, sexual, ideological, tribal in nature, whatever they are, and, and in the end, everyone is looking for a path to salvation, Everyone's looking for a space to belong, a place where the world can be made sense of through a narrative that offers both a sense of coherence and promises a way to control. And whether it goes unacknowledged or not, we we all have this longing for justice and and hope that, that one day the corrupt and the abusive won't be able to usurp history anymore, that they will be made to give it over, the control that they have to the Lord and maker of the world who will return in glory and in justice to condemn evil, to end suffering, and to gather his own to himself. And this is an eschatological longing. And the grand finale of the gospel as preached by Jesus is that 
There is hope. And it is just on the horizon. And it's also that justice and restoration, those are God's work. And ours is to actively watch and wait with expectancy and with hope. And that is not easy. One of the keys to understanding Mark 13 as a whole is to understand that Jesus is speaking about two different time frames. He's kind of going back and forth. Now, there's a break somewhere in the chapter. Some scholars think it's at verse 24. Some think it's at verse 32. But virtually all agree that Jesus is alternating between two different time frames, an imminent future, when he talks about these things, which... You know, he's talking about the things that led up to the fall of Jerusalem and the Jewish wars of AD 66 to 70. But then he also talks about those days or about that day, which points beyond the immediate future to the end of time. Now, just a a bit uh, of of background, uh, and it'll be brief because I've mentioned this a few times already, but if you remember, Jewish history is basically divided into two points between a a present age and an age to come. Uh, Remember this little slide, some of you? Um, And in between those two uh, ages was a a line of demarcation known as the day of the Lord. And so whenever you see a phrase in in the gospel like that day or about that day, like in verse 32, it's this kind of semi-technical shorthand for the day of the Lord. And this would be a day of judgment for the wicked. And at the same time, it would be a day of vindication, of of hope for the faithful who often found themselves oppressed and downtrodden by the wicked. And so this is the steady drumbeat of the Old Testament prophets. Practice the peace, the justice, the righteousness characteristic of the age to come right now in the present or you will be swept up in God's judgment at the day of the Lord when that comes. This present age, this age that we live in, is marked by sin, by death, by everything in between. Violence, corruption, strife, indifference to good. The age to come, by contrast, was marked by the return of shalom, of flourishing, of things the way that they were meant to be before the stain of sin and death entered into the world. It's this vision of deserts flowering where weeping and groaning would be no more, where people would work and cooperate toward fruitful effect, where where heaven and earth would be married to each other, where God would put things to rights and where this eschatological longing would be fulfilled. But Jesus has a very different definition of the day of the Lord. He speaks about the overlap of the two age, of the kingdom of, of heaven breaking into this world and of, and of the, the, the future that he is bringing colliding into the world very now, invading the present age, and one that will come to completion at the end of history. Uh, go ahead and move to the next slide. That somehow this day of the Lord would come as the eclipse of these two ages is taking place. So here's my take on what Jesus is saying in Mark 13. In one sense, he's speaking about history in the sense of the near future, a direct line. There's going to be a definitive event. That's what we talked about last week. There's that line in verse 14, the abomination that causes desolation. Sounds like a horror movie, right? 
And, and there Jesus is pointing to this particular event. He's telling his disciples, you're going to know this when you see it. That is the sign that the skies are about to get dark. That is the beginning of the birth pangs. But then Jesus is also speaking about history in the sense of a dotted line to all kinds of events that will happen in the future. These earthquakes, these famines, these wars, persecutions. In other words, he's saying these things happened, these things happen, these things will happen. These things happened. Even before all of this, in the old days of the Old Testament, in 587 B.C., before Titus and the fall of Jerusalem, there was a, a ruler in Syria known as Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was a king from Syria who came in and burned down the first temple, sacrificed a pig in the middle of it as a way of, of, of making fun of and poking at the Jews who, who were worshiping in that temple. Daniel prophesied about this as a sign of the things that were to come. So these things happened. These things happened. There's Paul writing in 2 Thessalonians about this man of lawlessness whose life is characterized by opposition to God's rule and reign who will set himself up in the temple that had not yet been destroyed when Paul was writing. And he writes this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, using the same language that Jesus is using here, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, now scholars are divided about what Paul is talking about. Is he talking about the same thing that Jesus is talking about, the destruction of the temple in the year AD 70? Or is he talking about something else? Honestly, it doesn't really matter because following Titus, there was Nero, and then there was Caligula, and then there was Domitian. There was a long string of, of emperors who rained down destruction upon the people of God. These things happen, and these things will happen. There have been rulers after them, Genghis Khan, Timur, Attila the Hun, right down to Hitler, Mao, and Idi Amin. My point is, in saying that the evil and destruction that happened in this world, this is the expected pattern in a world still marked by sin and rebellion and death. In the words of the biblical scholar Charles Cranfield, it was and still is true to say that the end is at hand. Ever since the incarnation, men have been living in the last days. But in all that time, in the life of Jesus, we see this kingdom breaking into the world where there is the beginning of these two ages coming together, the beginning of the eclipse. There's going to be tribulation, there's going to be birth pains, there's going to be suffering. Those are to be expected, but they are not the full stop. In those days, Jesus says, following that distress, the Son of Man will return. Sometimes after these things happened, after these things happen and they will continue to happen, 
until the day when the Son of Man comes in judgment and in glory to renew and remake the world. So here's my take on this super confusing passage in the Bible. In Mark 13, 31, or 1 through 31, Jesus is pointing forward to the destruction of the temple in a particular year, AD 70. He's telling his disciples that they are going to live to experience all of this, to prepare for what is to come. That's what we talked about last week. And then Jesus is pointing forward to this pattern of what we can expect history to be like until the end of history when God comes to return and reconcile everything. And then in verses 32 through 37, he says, about that day, he is pointing forward to a time when he will return to bring the fullness of the kingdom into the world to restore, to renew, and even to judge the world. But about that day, he says, no one knows. Not even he himself. It's pretty remarkable because Jesus is of one essence with the Father. And what he's getting at here is that, yes, but I have, in choosing to become one of you, in choosing to become God with you, I have set aside, I've emptied myself of the limitations, and I've taken on the limitations of humanity. And so rather than give his disciples license to speculate about the future, he tells his disciples then and into the future to watch, to pray, to be about the work that we saw Jesus do while he was with us. As he says in verse 34, like a man going away, he leaves the house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task. You could even say they are called to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. And that is still the call for us. It's easy and tempting to look back on the events of 8070 and be like, dude, that's, that was a long time ago, dude. Like that distant tragedy, sure, maybe of some historical significance. We live in really different times, though, so what's this got to do with us? Well, the little first century church, they faced all kinds of pressure to assimilate, either to the Jewish world or to the pagan world, and the call to watch and to wait and to, it was this call to remember that they were first and foremost citizens of the kingdom, to, to bring the culture of heaven to earth, to see that God's will was done on earth as in heaven. And we face those same kind of pressures, not at the threat of death, but perhaps at the loss of friendships, perhaps at the, the loss of some business, the loss of some social capital. There will be all kinds of pressures that lull you to sleep. And for the first 300 years of the church's life, persecution was thick in the air. To live as a Christian was to live under the, the constant threat of a death sentence. And yet people were bold. They refused to participate in aspects of their culture because they proclaimed that Jesus was Lord. And here's the thing for us. We need each other to live this out. We do it together, this whole staying awake thing. 
particularly in a culture like ours that is fragmented and, and polarized. We need each other if we're going to have the encouragement and strength to live out the gospel in our homes, in our neighborhoods, seven days a week, to see what the implications of that are for how we, we do our work, how we run our businesses, how we raise our kids, and which parts of the cultural systems we can participate in, and which other ones we have to say, no, I come at this differently because I follow Jesus and I live by a different story. And to do it in a posture of trust means that we acknowledge that the, the, the world around us and the future is not ours to control. It's not ours to coerce or to force the kingdom into the world. One of the most noticeable features of the early church is that they were resolutely nonviolent. They endured persecution. They refused to take up the sword. They refused to grab onto the levers of power, either in defense or to carve out a safe space for themselves. And there's this ominous warning at the end of the passage that, there will be, that these will be signs and portents of the future when the temple will be destroyed, that these will serve as a pattern of the things to come, a sign of the judgment that God is going to bring upon the whole world. And that day, it's going to come with that warning. So stay awake, keep the faith, keep watching, keep living in the kingdom, not compromising to the standards or fashions of the day, but according to the grace of the kingdom that is breaking into the world. But this was not because the violence and the oppression that they experienced was not a big deal. It, it was not a call to be detached, to be indifferent to the suffering of the world that goes on around you. They could refuse to take up the sword because the king was going to return and he was a king of justice. As I was preparing for this week, I remembered a section from uh, a book by Miroslav Volf called Exclusion and Embrace, one of the best theological books, in my opinion, of the last 20 years or so. And Volf now teaches at Yale, but he grew up in the Soviet states of Croatia and Serbia where he experienced intense social alienation for his Christian beliefs. His father was a, a Protestant pastor. They suffered terribly for it. And while he was completing a degree at Fuller Seminary in Southern California, he began to notice this profound disconnect about the, the way that you know, he grew up in this kind of savage, brutally oppressive, war-torn country, and the way that that led him to read biblical texts in contrast to the way that his American classmates who lived lives of relative ease and privilege read them. And they felt this most acutely over the idea of a final judgment. They told him, look, dude, if you believe in a God who, who, who smites the wicked, how can you not feel justified in wanting to enact violence on others? But he was somebody who witnessed the ethnic cleansing of the Balkans in the 90s, and he came to the opposite belief. He said, if there is not a belief in judgment, then our lives will devolve into bitterness hopelessness and vindictive retribution we will never be able to escape the cycle of violence and retaliation without a god who promises to come and deliver justice in other words there can only be peace and reconciliation in a world that like ours if there is a god of justice who will intervene and so he wrote this if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. 
The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes to God. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. But to the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest, imagine that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence, the thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And, as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect about the many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. His point. If you do not believe in a God who delivers justice, who puts a final end to violence and deception, that God is not worthy of worship, and you will have no choice but to pursue it yourself. This became really clear to me as I was reading Psalm 137 in a daily lectio. Uh, it's the one about bat dashing infants' skulls, the, the Babylonian infant skulls on the ground. And I always was like, that is like the worst. I can't believe this is in the Bible. I don't understand this. But I was reading that just a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd and to think about all of the mothers who have seen their kids put to death made me realize that if you do not have a, an outlet of a, of a language to turn this over to God, the only option you will have is to take up the sword yourself. A few days after Jesus tells his disciples to stay awake, he will find them sleeping in the garden, as he is praying. And he, again, he will tell them, stay awake. And then he'll tell them to put away their swords. He'll tell them that as he is arrested. But he isn't simply telling them to be passive in the face of evil, as though the wrong and the injustice that he is going to experience is going to be excused. No, he is saying, trust that God will deliver justice. And that is still the call for us to demonstrate the kingdom in a way that shows that we trust in the God who is coming. Jesus' promise to come again is this promise that a new world is breaking down the door. His first coming set into motion the death of one world and the birth of a new one. And somehow all of these pains and these longings and these frustrations and this groaning over injustice, it is real, but they are the groans of birth pains and the world will only be in labor for so long. And so we wait, not just in grief over the injustice of the past, but in hope for the future, trusting a God who on the cross has begun to set the world to rights. A day is coming when death, when guilt will be conquered when these bodies that ache and groan, these souls that bear the weight of longing, they too will be redeemed. When the eclipse of this age by the age that is coming happens, that will be the last word on everything. So friends, keep hope alive. Watch.
wait, trust for that day to dawn in which everything is made new. Amen.